We survived social media apocalypse 2021. We did it. And we will rebuild. It was what, five hours that Facebook was down? That's what they say, but I think I have a I have a sneaking suspicion it was a little longer than that. Yeah. I the only reason it mattered to me is because a lot of the Black Opera Alliance stuff happens in Facebook Messenger. So when mm-hmm. I was going to check up on that, I I couldn't get stuff to load and and it it was interesting. I uh, yeah, I don't have Facebook anymore. I turned mine off, like I said, about three or four years ago. And again, it has been so but it counted so for great. Instagram too, though. And you're up, you're very much on Instagram. I, I lurk, yeah. So, but but still, that's that's an activity. So I'm sure you went to Instagram at least once and and thought to yourself, oh, they're still not. I back. did, yeah. Okay, and then so there you go. And then it got more interesting to go back and see are they back yet? <laughs> um, but yeah, somebody brought up a great point. It's really hard to delete your account if you can't log in. I couldn't log into my <laughs> Zoom. That was that was my problem because I logged really? into Zoom through facebook oh wow so yeah and and i don't even i need to figure that out and get myself a password that has nothing to do with that anyway we all survived it was funny twitter stayed up and you you saw twitter was trolling yeah <laughs> the twitter tweeted hello literally everyone or and, whatever uh, but see for yeah. for a minute they they were twitter was acting up too like that <laughs> website wasn't quite right so you see you got to be careful when yeah. you when you out here trolling and carrying on all right hello everyone um for for this week's downbeat scott i wanted to go to Lizzo. Lizzo did a, a TED talk a few months ago and the footage has finally reached YouTube. So a lot of people have been watching it and, and seeing what she has to say. Before I even press uh, play here to get into uh, the little excerpt from the TED talk I wanted to share, I think it's really interesting and really notable the way Lizzo brought the flute to the front in a really interesting way. There, you know, we, there's all sorts of pop songs, even hip hop music we can talk about that has uh, instrumental parts or even flute parts that people mm-hmm. play or whatever. But there were reports when Lizzo was really starting to hit it big about flute sales going up and and folks uh, joining the band wanting to play flute. I think I think that's really cool. Isn't flute pretty popular anyway in orchestra? I would say. Oh, what do you in orchestra? I'm. Well, I mean, don't a lot of kids want to play oh, okay. the flute? Oh, I see what you're saying. Oh, yeah, I would say like flute, clarinet, trumpet, saxophone, those are pretty. But in the same way that superstars, super music stars, maybe of your generation when you were younger would make playing the guitar, playing the drum seem really cool. Lizzo did that with the flute. And mm-hmm. I think I think that's really notable. But anyway, let, let's listen to this little bit of the TED Talk I wanted to get into. 40 years ago, when black and brown people in New York invented breakdancing, it was villainized. Mainstream media weaponized breakdancing by connecting it to gang activity and violence. As an art form and subculture, it wasn't taken seriously. Fast forward to today, breakdancing is now an Olympic sport. What will be the future of twerking? (laughs) Russian ballet dancers are twerking. Have you seen it? They'd be like this. (laughs) Y'all think I'm playing. They out there like, doo-doo-doo-doo. Can we clear Tchaikovsky? <laughs> Will we see twerking as an Olympic That's just one, one little day? thing about it. I thought it was interesting how she's comparing twerking to so many different things and how we villainized it, but how it really made her career. It's really deep. I encourage everyone to go back and listen. But I wanted to start with that because I think it's interesting how she was even able to tie what she was talking about with twerking to Tchaikovsky, to, to so-called 
classical music, to mm-hmm. Western classical music. And the connections that can be made there are limitless if we just have the courage to engage twerking on our pristine ivory tower classical music spaces. You know, well, yeah. she, she was comparing twerking to uh, break dancing. Were you there when they were taking the refrigerator box and going outside when it happened. and trying to balance on their head? Yep. What, what did you think? I wished I could do it. <laughs> so it was I'm, popular. It was, right. it was a thing to do. Right. I'm better at it now that I'm 50 than I was back <laughs> when I was like 16. But shout out to Sal Savala. Sal Savala was, uh, he won a little Italian guy. And I, when I say little at the time, he, he was sure short of stature. But man, he had moves that defied gravity. And he was also a great boxer. It didn't matter his size. He'd kick your ass. And he did mine twice. Um, so shout out to Sal. Also to... Uh, said, you say he got you out of here. Right. Well, I deserve both of them. And Shelwyn Smith was the best popper and locker at Bryan High School. Okay, okay. What was the cultural context of someone who was really good at breakdancing back when you were a kid? Was this someone who was regarded as an upstanding citizen or, oh, look at those vagabonds and, and troublemakers over there breakdancing? The way that I looked at them? Or the way society looked at them? Because, again, oh. you know, we're comparing the breakdancing sure. to the twerking, right? So right. how does society view the breakdancing? Uh, from my perspective, they they were the superstars of the day. Oh, wow. Okay. You know, yeah. And, it, and for me, it was an unattainable level. I knew that I would never be able to do what they did. Yeah. Well, well and maybe you don't have context because really what I'm asking is if the, the person that was great at breakdancing, did your dad regard him as someone cool or a troublemaker? How did society, oh, how like did society the, yeah. view, like in the same way that our sure. teachers or whatever right. will talk about twerking and say, oh, they're over there twerking. Probably was that the, the way... Breakdancing, yeah, yeah, the the same as the skate punks, sure. the same as the Hessians. Which, if you don't know, the Hessians are the uh, the people who are listening to Rush and Led Zeppelin. You know the, uh, I guess like if you ever read the Outsiders in high school, they would be the Greasers. Sure, right, sure, sure. And uh, yeah, so of course, you know, and it was it was just like uh, administrators would go out and run the skateboarders off. Same with the breakdance. Same with the breakdance. Okay, yeah. so as Lizzo was saying, we have gone to that being the culture surrounding breakdancing, to there being teams at the International Olympics for breakdancing. Do you think that's what the future holds for twerking? Well, we'll be seeing the twerking competitions at, on the the Summer Olympics. Would they? It's a, it's a hot girl summer for real. What sort of tests? <laughs> what sort of tests would they run for performance enhancers <laughs> in that scenario? Oh, that's that's an interesting question, but it's important not to write it off because I almost hate to say it, but it's it's a lot of these young women who could never, who could never, and Lizzo was one of them anyway. Shout out to Lizzo. Go back and listen to her TED Talk. I think what Lizzo has done for Western classical music, again, circling back to the flute and her making that popular and everything is, is very notable. She managed to tie in that tradition by mentioning Tchaikovsky there. Mm-hmm. We need more of that cross-section sort of conversation in media, a lot like we do here on Triloquy. Hmm, let's get started. I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this 
is Triloquy. Opus 119 of the Triloquy podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. Returning listeners, thank you for coming back and thank you for helping us continue moving this ship forward into the future toward decolonizing classical music, the phrase and everything surrounding it. To new listeners, thank you so much for checking us out. This is a podcast that takes classical music, the phrase, the culture, and everything that surrounds it, lifts it up out of its so-called ivory tower, and connects it to the rest of the world. So we really appreciate your being here. For more information on the Triloquy podcast, visit Triloquy.org. You can find past opuses and your way to donate there on the website. In addition to your support, Triloquy is made possible Possible in part by the Shuttleworth Foundation. More information on the Shuttleworth Foundation at shuttleworthfoundation.org. I also want to send a shout out and a thank you to the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra for having me on their Twitch this week. Have you watched Twitch or, or done anything? I at have all twitched on Twitch? plenty. Have you? Okay, see, I no, I'm saying I'm not joking. I have. I'm not. talking about physically twitching. Oh, Never I mind. Okay. It's a bad joke. It's a visual <laughs> joke that didn't work. Where's my thing? Here we go. There. You are. Thank you. But but have are you familiar with the the twitch? I know that it, I know that there is twitching done out that, there. That 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 is all I knew. I had to create an account and everything today. But it was actually really <laughs> fun, and it's a it's a cool way to be interactive with audiences. I thought that was cool. We mm. went through their uh, newly released box set. The Orpheus Chamber Orchestra turns 50 years old next year. So so in celebration, all of their past recordings have been put in a box set. So um, me and Jim, shout out to Jim from the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra. We went through and picked some of our favorites from the past recordings and celebrated what they have coming up forward and, and all you that pick? sort of thing. Oh, I had some uh, Darius Mio in there. I mm. picked uh, actually I Chimney picked, of King Rene. Uh, no, the creation of the world. But actually, I thought about you. Uh, another one of my picks was Rod- <laughs> Rodrigo's Orange Juice Concerto. Remember that? <laughs> I do. <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you to everyone over there at Orpheus. And also wanted to, uh, before we get into the first movement, uh, send out a huge shout out to Adrian Dunn and the Rise Orchestra. I'm actually headed over to Chicago later this week to perform music by Marcus Norris for the Rise Orchestra season uh, opener. Really excited about that. Really excited. Excited to be in Chicago for the first time. Excited to get that bassoon of mine out in front of people because that's that's how that's how we're going to bring your beta blocker. That's how this is all start. Oh no, I don't. I, no, <laughs> no, I don't need that. Mm-hmm. I feel like you need a bit of the nervousness, a bit of the nerves. I think so to too. Get some of that out. So anyway, uh, more information um, on the Rise Orchestra uh, and Adrian Dunn in the description of this opus. Let's go ahead and get into movement one. Can I kick off with just a few corrections? Yeah, you have a a, a couple naturals, huh? I do. Go ahead um, and give it to before us. before I forget. I want to say thank you to Tara. She sent me a book called Soul of an Octopus, and I keep forgetting to say thank you to Tara. So shout out to Tara. Yeah, uh, I appreciate the thought. I have not started it yet, but we are tipping into winter very soon. So I'm, I'm sure that I'll get to it here in the next several weeks and also i need to put a natural next to uh last week i brought in autumn leaves mm-hmm. and, and really I, beautiful track and i quoted it as uh being performed by kd lang and it was actually paula cole's rendition yeah but the thing is is that everything i said about kd lang also applies to paula cole because it comes from a soundtrack album for good uh, midnight in the garden of good and evil mm-hmm. have you read that i haven't seen the movie no it's like 11 chapters of setup and then one chapter of plot and resolution sure. at the end. But um, it's all 
pop stars who have gone over to do these torch songs, these jazz standards. And Katie Lang is on there doing Skylark, which is where I got confused, but I regret the error. But Paula Cole's awesome. Yeah, that's how I was getting confused last week. I didn't know what you were talking about, KD Lang. And I even texted you. I was like, who sings this again? And anyway, so shout out to Paula Cole. You you know, I I don't want to overlook the incredible work that she's done musically, especially on that track, Autumn Leaves. Really incredible performance there. Be sure to go check that out if you haven't. So that's it. I just wanted to correct those. All right. So got a few naturals there and uh you're going to get us started in this first movement uh, with our checking our accidentals with what accidental i think this would be a sharp what are you it is. What, what are you giving this i'm giving a sharp to uh the article that i found uh, the world's first public orchestra launches in philly in philadelphia and before we started to record garrett you said a lot of cool stuff is happening in philadelphia and i think that you can file that underneath it uh so what is what this is is uh, a $700,000 Pew Grant uh, was awarded to the Philadelphia Public Orchestra, ambitiously seeking to redefine what an orchestra is and what it plays. And one of the first things that stood out to me was uh, one of the uh, conductor-composer slash, uh, I guess, founding members of uh, the organization, Ari Benjamin Myers, hit on something that stood out in rethinking the orchestra, which is traditionally so hierarchical Mm -hmm. with the conductor, the concertmaster, the first chairs, right? So you see this pyramid scheme happening, right? Right. He says it's extremely hard to imagine it any other way. So yes, we launch it together. There will be an advisory board to help it exist. And then the orchestra should take over and let the musicians, the performers, Think of who they would like to ask for a commission, what interests them, et cetera, et cetera, and occupy the orchestra, occupy in a different way is very much our thinking. So this is a lot because so let let's first so let's slow down and back up a little bit. So just make sure we aren't leaving anybody behind. This is a new orchestra that is people owned. They have a say in the programming and all of that sort of thing. So you have the outside sort of liberated component, but then you also have the internal just from what you read, mm-hmm. the uh hair the uh hierarchical sort of set up with as it says here the conductor the concert master the first chairs that that is going to be as hard of a sell i think when it comes to the makeup of orchestra than the outside because it's going to take a couple generations before the musicians that they're looking for to play in this orchestra to have shed themselves of those sorts of rules and it can be it can be a thing i, I spent five years as a second bassoonist and i was lucky you know shout out to aaron apaza i was lucky that uh the principal I played under was cool and we were friends and all of that stuff. But I can definitely see how that can be a a very stressful um, and oppressive (laughs) sort of situation uh, for someone. So I, so I'm, I think this is a cool idea, but you know, one of my principal concerns, no pun intended principal concerns (laughs) uh, is, is that there's a lot going on. Again, you have the, the outside that you're dealing with folks who have to handle what the audience wants to hear and, and the new, perspectives and the new structures being built there but also the internal struggles and the internal building of structures that have to be changed uh thank you for the setup on that by the way uh i just got so excited to see i I just thought that it was such a big piece Mm -hmm. you know that it's such a a big important foundational move that they're doing with trying to uh you brought up the orpheus chamber orchestra right yeah 
Okay, so that's a that's sort of a community band, right? I mean, community within themselves. They determine the direction they go and oh, yeah. the approach that right, they're going right, to take, right? Right, right. So yeah, definitely I, not a community band. I mean, the um, the people who play in that orchestra, I don't, uh, I don't know if I could even <laughs> get in there. But how about com- that, that's communal? there's some superstars in there. De- uh, democratic, de- democratic is yeah. good. Yeah, um, and I, I like I said, I thought that that was just such a a big piece that they're. That that it's in their their uh, it's on the masthead, you know, it's in their their mission statement, their core beliefs, whatever you want to. Yeah, say. and and then again, you have Ari Benjamin Myers who's there, but then you also have which who who is in uh, all of the interviews and he did, you know, from Germany was uh, is is what the article says. So he's international, but you also have at the head of this project Philadelphia's own Anthony Tidd. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Tidd. I want to read uh, a quote of his here in the article. It says, "The bottom line is this is a public orchestra where people can come together and participate." from their own comfort zone and within their own tradition. People who read music represent a very small percentage of the music happening in the world, including in America. Some people learn stuff by ear. Others use modified forms of written music, chord charts, etc. Removing the need to read music makes it more universal. I think that's going to be one of the big things that I feel like the musicians they're looking for Mm -hmm. have to sort of work on get over because the most trained of us are the most trained of us. If you get what I'm saying, it's it's hard to step back away from that page and really be creative in that way. But like like I said, they they have a lot of work ahead of them, but it's, uh, it's, it's it's exciting. And and it's also starting out where everybody's getting an honorarium. Right. So they're not going to be playing for free, you know, until the thing gets some momentum going or anything like that. They get $2,000. And, and plus the, the idea for the first season, um, it says it's devoid of anything that you will find in more traditional orchestral settings, instead including world premiere commissions by Myers, Germantown spoken word artist Ursula Rucker, Brooklyn-based musician Xenia Rubinos, and the beautifully unique Sun Ra Orchestra, a Philadelphia institution. So let's put ourselves there. You're in these communities, and the Philadelphia Public Orchestra wants to know what you want to hear, what you want your experience to be. What do you suggest? What do, what are you, you going to tell them to to put on stage or suggest? What do I like to? I'd, I'd like to hear some Michael Abel's live. Okay. Or Devante Hines. Okay. So going into um, the repertoire, you know, because again, one of the big well, they things, said they were going to commission. Yeah, something. yeah, commission and also oh, you're saying you want to hear new works by those. That composers. would be great. Oh, okay, yeah. I mean, because I we know Abel's from us and and Get Out. Yep, and also and, a lot of his you know regular old concert music. Right, yep. but Winged Creatures is new. one that comes yep. across all the time. Um, Maybe Nabal Masood has has some ideas, you know? Yeah, they're doing some great work as well. I would tell them, I just want to hear something that's going to make me groove. I want to hear something that you know, is Motown, gonna, Philly, in orchestral form? I, oh, I didn't even think about that. That would be incredible. Can you <laughs> can you imagine? Because Boys to Men was already getting the harmonies together, just mm-hmm. the four of them. Mm-hmm. Oh, that could, that could really be something. Oh, my gosh. I didn't think of that. Wow. I hope they're listening. Uh, uh, Mr. Tid, <laughs> we need some boys to men on stage. Something that I thought was hilarious from this, because, you know, <laughs> these articles are never without a little bit of, of shade. A little shade. <laughs> uh, Mr. Tid said, we're not trying to have 20... 20- I can't even read it without laughing. We're not trying to have 25 members of the Philadelphia Orchestra here. This orchestra will be very diverse. (laughs) And then it links here. As of 2020, the Philadelphia Orchestra had just three black members. So look, can you imagine? 
That's the problem. And that's the challenge of being black in these spaces beyond the racism you have to think of. Now I'm going to click this link and, <laughs> oh, no. and see who the three people okay. are. <laughs> you, you can you can imagine I, the, the pressure there. How about we? Hold on. Oh, you're just, gonna go now. I just want—I didn't even click the link. Does it just go straight to their, to their website or whatever? Okay, so it goes to a WHYY article. Well, uh, shout out to the black members of the Philadelphia Orchestra, all three of y'all. But uh, uh, but Mr. Tid said we 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 not gonna look like that. We we actually gonna be about something. So, yeah. Good luck to them. I love I, that. I'm excited about it. I was I was really glad to bring that in today because that that warmed me up. Yeah, and there actually is you know one hand still on the Western catalog when it comes uh, to this story. So Myers, who is also a part of it again, Ari Benjamin Myers, he ex- uh, explains here, I'm, I'm reading from the article, it says, Myers exp- explains that part of his inspiration for the public orchestra came from the lesser known Fellini film orchestra rehearsal in which the orchestra and conductor are used as metaphors for radical political change. So the composer of that soundtrack to a film called Orchestra rehearsal was Nino Rota. So right. fo- folks who don't know his name would know he did what The Godfather. Is that what he did? Fam- and his most Fred- famous one? Federico Fellini films, and you bet. But yeah. but the one most folks would know is uh, Godfather. Godfather right? two. Godfather two. I just yeah. want to make sure I'm getting that right. So a uh, really cool uh, composer, uh, Nino Rota actually also wrote a bassoon concerto, which is rare because a lot of the composers didn't. I'll I'll share some of that with y'all uh, some other time. But to transition into our next accidental, I wanted to share a little bit of the Nino Rota score to orchestra rehearsal. So shout out to everyone in Philadelphia. Good luck. And uh, we'll see what y'all get up to in the next few years. Few years. That's a nice way to end a piece of music there. Almost like how we end Triloquy every week, huh? <laughs> With a crash. <laughs> well, I, I didn't, I did not get it from him. Okay, so they can't, oh, they can't come back with that. <laughs> we, we have been, we have been ending with a, a gong without even. I didn't even know about that piece of music, so <laughs> that's okay. Um, the the I also found the album artwork really interesting for that piece of music. If you look at this uh, this body of musicians on the album artwork again for this piece of music called Orchestra Rehearsal, what musician? Which of the musicians is in the center of it all? Right there, the bassoons. Oh, okay, okay, all right. Just you know, I'm, well, I can't see from all the way over here. But <laughs> oh, it okay. is. It okay. is. We're always in the middle of the mess somehow. Mm. All right. <laughs> uh, speaking speaking of fixing the mess, uh, an, uh, an accidental that I wanted to bring in this week. I'm gonna um, I'm gonna give this a sharp as well. Really a really good read. I want everyone to take a look at. Uh, this comes from VanOuterNational.com. Uh, a piece by George Lewis called "New Music Decolonization in Eight difficult steps so so first and foremost what do you think about that title we we talked so much about how this work is uncomfortable or or whatever messy do you think getting into it and just naming these things as difficult is a good thing to do just right out the bat letting folks know look this is just hard okay um i think that there's other 
outlets out there that are doing the soft glove mm-hmm. or the the kid gloves. So yes, there there has to be the acknowledgement of the hard to swallow bits you yep. know, being plain. I yep. get yeah, I get that. Yeah. Let me read a little bit of this. Um just this is just come from coming from the middle. Um questions that the writer is asking. How can we counter the impoverishment and uh devolution of the field that has resulted from the consistent absences of the same ethnic, racial and gendered voices from stages, media, music histories and professional networks? How could music curators uh could start composing and improvising decolonization what would a decolonized curatorial regime sound like and i think those are really good questions to ask because when folks come to me and they see the the mission the description of triloquy all that sort of thing we have conversations about well what does it mean to be decolonized what does decolonization mean what does post-colonized post-colonial music and ecosystem look like you know i talked about that a few weeks ago a, a couple months ago with john sopaya manan but you know they're, they're really important questions to uh, dig into. And George Lewis just puts step by step, eight, eight <laughs> difficult steps, as it says uh, in the in the title. So I wanted to talk about a few of them here. The first one is move beyond kinship, invest in new populations. When I read that, that just bullet point there, the first thing I think about, Scott, is the fact that we aren't yet beyond kinship in classical spaces when we talk about equity and diversity. I hear the aesthetic of Samuel Coleridge Taylor. I listen to the aesthetic of uh, of uh, Joseph Ballone and all these people, these black composers who are black, yes, but still have that connection to the mm-hmm. traditional sounds we're used to. I wonder what it uh you know and i feel like we ask this question all the time but i wonder what it would look like or or the steps that it would take to move beyond that aesthetic kinship to really get into something that isn't safe something that sounds different from the orchestral sounds we're used to just so that we're on the same footing can we go back and actually say in a little bit plainer terms what decolonized curatorial regime means does that just mean like somebody putting together an orchestra program well think a about it for a radio show think about it if anyone you know put curates a concert or curates a radio show curates anything is it not going to center the western gaze the mm-hmm. european mm-hmm. gaze okay. the, the okay. most equitable of us you know so we're talking about this global thing that we just need to break down right okay so in relation to this move beyond kinship invest in new populations yeah um you're, you're going to have to say more because I haven't grasped it yet. I apologize if, if you can. Well, again, and here on the list, when, um, you know, when he's talking about move beyond kinship, broadly, I take that as meaning moving beyond what we know, what we're used to, what we can make that direct connection to. Okay. Okay. And, you know, really invest in these new populations. When we talk about diversifying our, our uh, concert spaces, for example, mm-hmm. what the audiences look like, it's easy to try to get the peripheral <laughs> blacks, the, per- the peripheral uh, diverse communities, but really putting money toward mm-hmm. completely new populations of people is something that we haven't yet done. And I think it's very yeah. notable for that to be number one on this list. It's um, it's not a popular opinion that I have in my industry, but uh, if we are really going to do a good job about moving away from the Western canon, we need more to play. We need more recordings, right? Yeah, sure, sure. And 
I, I don't think that it will survive unless more commissions are done. You know, we, we get not only are more, I know that there's a lot of unrecorded music out there. Sure. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But we need to get to work at fixing that to actually, if nothing else, just for documentation. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But, by but all, how by, do we grow is what I'm saying. But, you know? but, but by all means, we'll have Beethoven 10 recorded after has been or whatever no it's recorded now they've done it anyway but but did you not read the article (laughs) (laughs) look let's let's not backtrack um but you know mentioning commissions is very important because number four on this list is encourage ensembles to commission think about all think about all of the music all of the recordings that we could have if we just said, okay, someone in this community, though, here's an orchestra, write a piece of music, even bolded from the uh, the subtext from uh, this point of encouraging ensembles to commission, there's no reason why major institutions that tout themselves as international should continue to present all white programs. Right, I mean, right. when I mean, and 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 it's all there. You know, the the global majority not being represented in these spaces. So commissioning, you know, people always want to say, well, you know, where are the composers or is there a list or whatever? Well, just get somebody to write something. Right. And, and it's and it's going to be great. Um, so Paviel French would be a good example. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Uh, number, I'm not going to go through all of them uh, here, but number five says, make decolonization, decolonization. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Don't make that part of the foreground. Make decolonization. This is after dinner and drinks. Make decolonization an explicitly foregrounded part of cultural policy. I think this is a very important one. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna shout out uh, the American Composers Forum. One of the reasons why I uh, am comfortable aligning myself with that organization, just as an example, is because racial equity is a part of the framework. It's not a program. It's not a side project. It's not something that is uh, that accompanies the mission, the goal, the purpose of the organization. It's a part of it. And that's what's laid out here in number five of this. Again, make decolonization an explicitly foregrounded part of cultural policy. It's difficult, Scott, to be the person of color demanding that out of the organizations we work for. I understand that. Let's take it to radio. I understand that you want to be a companion to your audiences and whatever else the, the official mission is, but this has to be a part of it. And the fact of the matter is institutions, large arts institutions have the ability to do that, have the ability to foreground this, not only the ability, but the, uh, the potential impact. Think what it would be for, Every radio station and every orchestra in the country, in the United States, to just treat, and I hate, to, I'm, I'm hesitating because I'm using, I'm about to use a phrase I don't like to use, but the, the idea of world music, okay, what people generally think of when they, when they hear that phrase. What if that is what the formats, the so-called formats, whatever, were changed to? That's all classical music. It's classical music from other parts of the globe. Okay, from mm-hmm. other cultures, but it's still classical music that would have huge impact. And I think that's what it will look like for these, um, you know, these institutions, as it says here, to explicitly foreground decolonization. The last line here makes a point that is a new perspective for me. A failure to hear these new sounds constitutes not only a form of sensory deprivation, but also an addiction to exclusion as identity that ends up, as addictions often do, 
an impoverishment of the field or even in its eventual death. Eventual death. So in a roundabout way, I understood it. <laughs> so what's your response to that sentence you just read? Having, well, the, having the experience you have in your field, hearing over and over again, all oh, this is dying and we're still here. Is right. this not just another one of those, uh, one of those accusations that won't be true in, in the end? I think it's becoming true, though. The, the thing that does it for me is that it, the, the sensory deprivation part uh, looking at it as um, uh, missing, you're missing out on, you know, you're not paying attention to the greats, you're missing out on the greats. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. No, exactly, exactly. So think about, so when we're, you say grapes, right? No, greats. Oh, greats. Miss it. Oh, on the greats. On the greats. You know, oh, I thought you were speaking metaphoric. Well, well, well let's go with the say, People say, okay, no, we play the canon, we play the legends. Okay, well, we have legends living right now that are working, right? Right. Well, that will be right. Well, but let's even go with the metaphor that I thought you were going with. Let's say someone has never had grapes. Okay. Think about the way that your taste buds will develop over your life and your idea of fruit if you've never had grapes. Okay. <laughs> okay. So let's forget the grapes and go no, with the grapes metaphor. Yeah, but 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 I, I think I think that applies because there is so much music, music that represents the global majority. Mm-hmm. When you really think about mm-hmm. it, so music that more people know than not in some cases. But we're putting that to the side. We're not eating those metaphorical grapes for the sake of maintaining space. So you know that that. that that has to be considered as mm-hmm. well. The, uh, the the last one, I don't want to uh, spend a lot of time. Again, I'll have this in the description. But the last one that I really appreciate reading was number seven. It says, encourage media discussions of new music decolonization. Oh, my gosh. What are we what, what are we doing here? What are we doing here other than doing exactly that? Isn't isn't that exciting to see? I'm excited to see that. And I know I shouldn't make everything about me and all our little projects, but I think Triloquy represents an example of what George Lewis is speaking to here. We can't just have the music. Mm-hmm. We can't just mm-hmm. have the performance. We have to have the narratives and the conversation that surround it. Are these really that hard though? He said that these are like eight difficult. They must be. Or? They must be because look at the look at the look at the field. You know, mm. look at the look at the ecosystem where, where we're talking about. I don't know. Maybe he's maybe he's thinking it's it's hard to admit. I'd buy that. I, I won't go into it, but I'll just mention the the final of these eight difficult points is change of consciousness, and that that's that's that that's the big picture because that requires us changing the way we just think about things, changing the way we think about uh, a, an orchestra from the start. You know, just getting rid of the idea of violins and violas as a seminal part of it. It can be a part of it, but anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, Thank you. Thank you so much to George Lewis for getting those out. I encourage everyone to take a listen and to really think about how you can apply that to your own field and to your own work. We have one more accidental to check in this first movement, but to transition us there again with the idea of decolonize. I don't know why I come in here and come on here and can't read every every Monday night. Decolonization (laughs) in the (laughs) in the spirit of that. um, I I found this uh, performance. I'll put it in the uh, description. It's uh, by Jimek. I think that's the arranger. Uh, a hip hop history orchestrated. There's all sorts of really uh, great tunes here. We're going to start. Let me press play. We're going to start here with a little music by a tribe called Quest. 
and see what else they get into. Ending with a little, a little Kanye, they, uh, their flashing light. So you know we have this Western orchestra. Do you think the drummer is at all frustrated by what? <laughs> by the cadence that they're taking with it? With the what do you mean the cadence? Because it's boxy, right? Oh yeah, yes. Yeah, it's very square. It's very much an orchestra, isn't right. it? But it's that that's that's a step. I don't okay. I don't think that's a an example of a decolonized orchestra because we still have the very boxy playing. I mean, you hear they didn't need this or and no shade to the orchestra, but they weren't even getting that famous uh, piano line from the Wu Tang from Cream quiet right. Right. And I feel like if you have black folks in these spaces, you somebody there would raise their hand, or I certainly during the break. Uh, you know, during the orchestra break, we'll go up to the podium, tell the conductor, listen, here, here go the real one and, and play it from my phone. And let's just fix that for, for the sake of equity, for, mm. for the sake of respecting the music the same way we would respect everything else. Uh, an orchestra certainly wouldn't get on stage playing in, incorrect rhythms when it comes to uh, a Beethoven symphony or, or that sort of thing. So why would we treat music by Wu-Tang any different? And, you know. Always a little dust in the corners. I got you. Yeah. <laughs> but but I think that's a step in the direction when we think about a decolonized ecosystem, arts ecosystem. I think we need to celebrate moments like those because that gives us an idea of the path ahead. But again, the 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 real music would be if we had some sort of ensemble of people who had some sort of investment and true understanding of the music so that incorrect rhythms like that wouldn't wouldn't appear do you think that there was a black person in the room when they put the playlist together <sighs> i hope not because I, I i would hate to see you know one of my brothers or sisters not you know fixing fixing the dust where they can with these rhythms and all that sort of thing mm. but none of us are perfect i'm no, sure they I were just, busy i just meant the ones <laughs> that they thought that they were going to cover you know when they were picking out the playlist no that mind. no that's that's what i'm saying I, I i would hope that that the person in that room would surely be listening to the concert at, at the end of it or listening to whatever the rehearsals sure. or whatever yeah. so you know oh we, we, we all again i i think there's always room to to take a look at the small points of that because again as much as we try to dissect and play uh trills starting from above and all that nonsense and classical music mm -hmm. y'all can go back and get that rhythm right anyway i'm I'm not here to rant about that uh my what, my, are, what are you here to my, my last accidental i'm gonna give this a natural because i'm not sure if it should be a sharp or a flat everyone has been talking about the super bowl 2022 halftime show and who headlines it so first and foremost scott I know I know that you aren't in front of your TV watching, you know, the actual game, but do you make any effort to at least watch the halftime show when it's happening? We all go back on YouTube, but do you consider yourselves one of those folks who needs to be there no. to see it? I'm sure they were. I mean, if if one of your favorite artists was doing the the NFL, I almost say NBA. That's how few sports I watch. The NFL halftime show, you would you you would watch one of your faves on the on the stage. Probably. Yeah, but no, up to this point I haven't 
felt it necessary to be there. Yeah. I always make a point to watch the musical performances because I just want to see what these artists come up with in the same way that I love watching the, the tiny desk concerts. I like to see what, how these artists take their music and pare it down. Mm -hmm. I want to see how these artists explode their music and really mm. create a thing. There have been so many incredible, you know, just in, in my adulthood, so many incredible halftime shows. I'll never forget the Katy Perry. She bodied, you mm. know, coming in on the giant uh, tiger. Uh, of course, you know, what Beyonce did a, a couple years in a row during homecoming, uh, home, during homecoming, during the NFL. She had her own and she performed with Coldplay mm -hmm. and uh, Bruno Mars. I'm also thinking about the um, the Lady Gaga, uh, you know, just an, an incredible performance there. Of course, everyone talks about the Prince halftime show where Fam U came and during Purple Rain, it rained. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like Prince could even control the weather. Wow. It's so <laughs> all, all of that to say that this is a this is a, a big moment and a moment that a lot of people over there at the NFL know people will be paying attention to. Now, in the past few years, there have been a lot of black folks, myself included, black folks, everyone, but I'm certainly in the number who critique the existence of the NFL after everything that we saw with uh, Colin Kaepernick and they didn't even want to take a knee and the way the audiences react. So a lot of us, myself included, don't even want to be involved. But the NFL sure knows what they need to do to get me to tune in. The headliners, for if you haven't heard, for 2022 will be Snoop Dogg, Eminem, Dr. Dre, Mary J. Blige, and Kendrick Lamar. Mm -hmm. So when you see that... <laughs> I don't even I don't even have to ask you, but when you see those names as the headliner, who are they? Who are they just trying? Just last ditch effort, putting all the money up, doing whatever they have to do to get this collection of classic artists on the stage. Who do they want paying attention? Are you asking me? Yes. Oh, black people. Okay. Okay. What I thought that was implied. <laughs> I don't want to watch it, but I will. And I think about this in relation, I'm, you know, my, my fire shut up in my bones review is coming on the 20th of this month. That's after I come back from New York, by the way, I'm, I need to um, send up a, a natural for you uh, on, on your behalf. Shout out to Jim. I had Jim and a couple of people who listened to NPR and heard you mention the opera. They said, you said fire shot up in my bones. It's fire shut up. In my bones. That's um, <laughs> it's entirely possible that I misspoke. Yeah, I'm, I'm just no. That happens. All, that just happens quick a natural. lot. Just quick natural. That happens a lot. <laughs> anyway, so just Sorry, like gang. so, just like the NFL knows what they have to do to get me there, the Met and many other organizations we're seeing know what they have to do to get me and folks like me there. And I'll tell you, when I press submit. On that ticket for the Met, I was like, damn, this I need to be giving this money to somebody else. But I want to be there for that historic moment just to say that I was. I could come back here and shit on the whole thing. But I just want to make sure that I was there for that historic moment. And what I have to say comes from, you know, and I acknowledge all of the privileges. Anyway, all of this to say, I wonder what your thoughts are on the thin line between engagement and pandering. Do you even consider the idea of pandering and all of these discussions we have about diversity, engagement, grabbing new artists, uh, uh, new audiences, rather, accessibility? We haven't talked ever on Triloquy, I don't think, about the idea of pandering. What do you think about that thrown into the mix of everything we do here? Well, I'll be honest. And from my perspective, I read the headline and I go, wow, that's a, that's a lot of top flight talent. Yeah. 
And then from our past conversations, we know that Hove is, uh, had, had made nice with yeah, N- N- yeah. NFL people. I don't know what that situation was, but we talked about it, about him being a pipeline into that community. Yeah. So do you think that he had any influence or sway in trying to attract some of those names? Well, let's read here again. I'm reading from CBS Sports. So babe, this might be one of the first time we're reading from a sports mm. website here. Hopefully I can pronounce all these words. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm quoting uh, here, Dr. Dre. He says, the opportunity to perform at the Super Bowl halftime show and to do it in my own backyard will be one of the biggest thrills of my career. He goes on to say, I'm grateful to Jay-Z, Rock Nation, the NFL, and Pepsi as well as Snoop Dogg, Eminem, Mary J. Blige, and Kendrick for joining me and what will be an unforgettable cultural moment. So just in the same way mm. that fire shut up in my bones is this historic cultural moment that I just really want to be there for. I'm going to be in front of my TV for what Dr. Dre has described here as an uh, unforgettable cultural moment. It just irks me when I think about it, and I'm always looking for the fine points and the critiques. It just irks me when I think about the idea of some rich group of board members somewhere uh, associated with the NFL saying to themselves around their table, well, you know, maybe maybe uh, we're losing trust with the blacks and we want those advertising dollars and that viewership. Let's just pull out all the stops and get the classic black artists and make sure they're watched. I mean, when, when, I, when I think about that, I just can't help but to think of myself as a, a pawn on their chessboard just following when they dangle one little piece of cheese in front of us mm. in the form of five legendary artists yeah um no i hadn't looked at it from your perspective i i mainly just kind of raised my eyebrows a little bit and thought man that's got to cost that's going to cost yeah or, or no way they don't pay them to be Mm-mm. on the on the halftime show but i feel like there had to be some sort of money exchange because right. dr because, right. <laughs> wait a minute let's go back because dr dre thanked jay-z rock nation the nfl oh who else did he thank pepsi oh, okay uh-huh. okay all right well <laughs> yeah so no i i i didn't look at it from your perspective it's that's that's a good one i just sat there thinking about yeah jay-z might have pulled some strings i don't know I guess now I'm thinking I'm going back to the Philadelphia Public Orchestra thing that we were talking about. When it comes to true engagement and the type of engagement that I can't contextualize or recontextualize as pandering, that must be closer to the thing. Even if the NFL put out a a big poll or whatever, who do y'all want to see at the Super Bowl? Mm -hmm. I imagine that there would be some blackness represented because Mm -hmm. when it comes to pop music, you know, pop music in the United States and the world is black music. There's no denying that part. But I still, you know, even thinking about that, I can't help but to sort of feel icky and feel like I am a part of this system that is strengthening itself by way of offering us a few little, a few little things, you know. I'll, I'll, we'll that let y'all like, have the NFL halftime show, and y'all enjoy that, and we'll keep all the other structures the same. Mm. That doesn't seem like crumbs to me. That lineup. Well, yeah, and yeah, no shade. I, I certainly don't mean that's a full fledged meal, multiple meals, because Snoop Dogg could do the halftime show. Dr. Drake, you know, yeah. Eminem, you know, but by themselves. But yeah. and I'm sure the five of them, between the five of, among the five of them, someone is gonna 
you know bring someone on stage that we didn't recognize for the feature song or or whatever so i mean and and maybe you're making a, a great point there you're saying that this is more than just crumb so maybe i just need to sit down and shut up and <laughs> no i i think that there's just different perspectives yeah you know and and i didn't think about the direction you were coming from yeah that never crossed my mind yeah and, and not to say that this is a bad thing or this something that shouldn't happen we're all very excited we're all gonna watch we're all gonna be tuned in but i can't help but to think about that because we will all be tuned in mm -hmm. because otherwise i wouldn't be there if, if y'all were talking about leonard skinner or somebody for the for the halftime show i couldn't tell you what color of, shirt he was wearing what, because the, i would not one be or two in. of them that are left alive <laughs> i'll see i didn't even know that much so i'm mm. i just spit something out but anyway uh I, Wait, I why leonard Skinner. When have I ever played Skinner for I was, you? I was just trying to think of the widest thing <laughs> that I could think of. <laughs> anyway, so I'm, I mean, to, to y'all listening, I want y'all to think about that. What What is the line between engagement and pandering? And what does that look like as we try to bring more folks into the fold? If I invite, let, let's say I'm playing with an orchestra somewhere or doing something, and I invite my family because it's going to be some black music represented or, or whatever, mm. am I not a part of that? And mm -hmm. in what ways are these organizations really paying the price and investing? What did the George Lewis article say that uh, we were we're looking at one of the points was investing in new communities and maybe some people can say um, this is some sort of investment but you know mm. I don't know so 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 we'll see I, I think it's cool I just wanted to bring that in because it was something that I was thinking about over the course of the week especially when I saw the news the NFL as much as they get on my nerves they they get in my viewership the Met getting my my little coins getting my dollars it it just it just seems like they they have all the tricks and they they know exactly what to do so yeah i don't know just something to think about some something, something, something to consider and if you hear me make a, a mistake feel free to email me <laughs> again shout out to jim he 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 wants to um he wants to hang out actually he he uh, he accompanied me to the um the buddhist center this past sunday i went to the buddhist center so mm. we have all sorts of great conversations anyway that's all the accidentals for this week so to get us into the second movement where Scott and I are going to take the second ending, I wanted to listen to a little Mary J. Blige since since she will be headlining at the Super Bowl. I found an artist. What dance is she going to break out? <laughs> oh, you know the stumble <laughs> dance. You know, oh, she's legendary. <laughs> oh, Mary J. Blige's dances are everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and she is, I mean, and such a multifaceted talent. She's been in television shows that you watch. There was some time yeah. travel or something. Umbrella Academy. Yeah, yeah. So, yes. She was great. Yeah, special shout out to Mary J. Blige. Anyway, so um, I found an artist. Uh, his name is Daniel D. Definitely go check him out. I'll have him linked in the description. He does all sorts of covers and did a, a really fun Mary J. Blige cover that we're going to listen to a little bit of to get into the second movement. You're also searching for a real love, aren't you? <laughs> 
Real love. That's hilarious. I'm searching for a real love. Mm -hmm. Shout out to Mary J. Blige. Incredible, incredible, incredible artist. I'm going to spend some more time with her later this evening. Every time I, every time I, am reminded just think about Mary J. Blige I just think about the vibe of having this uh just wise woman singing words it's not like she's always around here like some of these artists trying to do these vocal flips and everything it's just Mary J. Blige is just speaking her truth to you every time mm -hmm. you hear her music incredible incredible stuff see now look at the NFL getting me excited about watching this <laughs> halftime show I can't. Hey, nobody's, <laughs> nobody said you were going to be watching the game leading up to it. Yeah, because I'm not going to know none of the teams or nothing. Anyway, we're here in the second movement where Scott and I are taking the second ending. We share a piece of music with y'all that we've been repeating over and over and all week and uh, tell y'all a little about a little bit about why we were doing so. How about you get us started this week with the second ending? What you got? Last week you brought in, uh, I don't know if it was one of the things you were listening to, but Nirvana played by... A, oh yeah, uh, like uh, a chamber, Aston, yeah. yeah, chamber group, um, and uh, I said, "Why not? Why, why do that? Why not listen to something new or something yeah. by that ensemble or something?" Sure. Well, with the guest this week being from South Florida, I brought in a band from South Florida that I interviewed when uh, we used to have some stations down there, and they're Tiempo Libre, a group of players that are conservatory trained from Havana, Cuba. But they also would go out and just play in the streets, in the cafes, mm -hmm. in the dance halls, you know. And they have an album that, uh, when I first caught on to them, called Bach in Havana. And they base each of the compositions off of a composition by Bach. Mm -hmm. So I started thinking about, okay, if, if I was listening to this, any, any track on this album, and I didn't know it was based on a Bach track, I wouldn't recognize it and it wouldn't matter. So I started thinking, does that matter then if somebody heard smelled like smells like team spirit orchestrally and they didn't know it? Would mm -hmm. they would they would they still go, hmm, okay, I can feel this or something? Would it matter? I mean, that's that's the point I make week after week. This music can fit in these paradigms that we've built, but there's something about the aesthetic of it that people are so afraid of when we talk about diversifying the spaces. So it does, it does matter, but it, it sounds like I don't, let, let me not hijack, but it sounds like this group is challenging that notion. Mm -hmm. They're playing Bach. It just sounds a little different. Right. So do you want to uh, pull up there? Uh, the one that I really liked was Fuga Cha Cha Cha, which is based on the Sonata in D minor, the BWV listing is 964. And see, because they took the time to name, to cite what the Bach inspiration was, I wanted to listen to a little bit of it. So when we hear this, <laughs> this is, again, this is the Bach Sonata D minor B, uh, WV 964 Movement 2 Fugue. Okay. it. I don't even know if in 2021 this is music good for relaxation <laughs> like is this helping someone sleep what what tell me the no, tell, me, tell me the purpose of this and i'm not trying to completely shit on bach but for all of the reasons we have for just censuring that aesthetic what's the thing because if i'm in here trying to read or trying to write a paper or something i'm cutting that off i, I don't you, you remember when we previewed this I said, every single note finds the base of my spine and vibrates. <laughs> it's like... <clears throat> I mean, shout out to the harpsichord players, but 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 that ain't it. Anyway, so that... Is, it's just not my but So that taste. is the piece of music that inspired this. Right. Mm -hmm. 
First of all, shout out to the Wiro player. You better mm-hmm. play the fish. That's right. <laughs> right? That is not easy. I love it. I live. Tempo Libre. And you say you uh, interviewed yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. They're so, great. So so what is the so we have the Bach. We we have that music. I'm going again. Shout out and no shade to the harpsichord players, but I'm cutting that off. Right. I just can't. Okay. <laughs> uh, so what is the uh, I, I can make a case for the tempo libre that we just heard in classical spaces because I, I can make a case for anything. But for you, what is the vibe? What is the activity? What what is what what is the uh, circumstance under which this music is a part of what you're doing? Was is was this a part of your walking radar? Do you like this vibe when you're trying to fix the kitchen sink, or what is it for you? Well, when I oh when I went went back and revisited yeah. this, oh no, well you know I've been doing a lot of cleanup, and so that sort of rhythm helps you keep moving, right? <laughs> but also yeah. it's been kind it's been kind of overly warm and muggy here recently, mm-hmm. especially for Minnesota in October, you know, and a little you know a little balmy, mm-hmm. and that and the way the the winds have been coming in, you know we don't have any palm trees to push around, right? But, you know there is a but you have that broom to push around, I, and I've been doing it. <laughs> so yeah, no, I it, it was just accompanying me, and and it was really a motor. Mm. You know, it really just kept it, it just kept me going. Is all I'm saying. Yeah, that's really. I, fun. I enjoyed it. That's really fun. And also, if I were listening to that, and somebody told me, you know, that's basic. If they pulled me aside and went, you know, this is based on a Bach piece, right? It, it would, <laughs> you would not, be like, what? <laughs> like, I, I wouldn't have known, and it wouldn't have, and it wouldn't have changed my opinion on how danceable or listenable it is. Yeah. Well. I think that's great. I'm going mm. to pull up some more of them. And, I, you know, we have all instruments. We have Bach. We have what fits into any classical space as far as I'm concerned. But, you know, the aesthetic is a, it's a little brown for some of those people. Um. So, or, or, or what else is it? That's my question. Mm. You know, because, mm. because we have Bach. Right. You know, we've, we've established that it's Bach. It's all instruments. Most of them, even that Wiro, even the fish, you'll find in the orchestra. <laughs> yep. You know, so what... what, what Anyway, I know you get exasperated every every week. I just I just get so frustrated because <laughs> because we have all of the ingredients there, and you're making the point, you know. Anyway, so um, well, it must be working. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so 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 let me get to mine. So I want to give a um uh for for my uh second ending. Excuse me. For my second ending, I want to give uh, a shout out to Damien Strange. So um, he's a local artist who curates different sorts of concerts. And on Facebook, see, I w- if Facebook was down that night, this night, I wouldn't have gotten the invitation on Facebook. Mm-hmm. He sent me an invitation uh, to go to a bar to um, hear one of his uh, curated concerts. And the folks who started off the concert are... The Muatas, that's what they're uh, known as. I, I don't want to say that they're married because I don't know, but it's Cam Muata and Ayana Muata, the Muatas. They uh, come together uh, with their instrument. He plays uh, electric guitar, bass. Um, Ayana is in front of the keyboard and, and the computer, the synths, all those sounds, and create music that, when I shared a little bit of it with you, you described as trip hop. And I think mm-hmm. that's a, a cool way of contextualizing Hash it. Bar. As we... Uh, move 
toward getting back outside and you know the concert spaces are open i first of all i really appreciated hearing live music uh you had to show you know your papers to go in that that's becoming more common of a thing showing your vaccination status but we were in there you know sitting in a little booth in the um with the dark red light and and all you know so that smoky it wasn't smoking on the inside but you know the proverbial smoky vibe and we're hearing this really incredible music by the uh, muatas the track i wanted to share is called Sandman. So when um, when they described this before they played it, they were painting the picture of how stressful it was to live in the heart of Minneapolis in the summer of 2020 during all of the uprisings and how that triggered not only really troubling thoughts and feelings awake, but how for them it triggered really troubling dreams even nightmares so he wrote this tune called sandman to explain that really incredible vibe that i'll share a little bit of with y'all here vibe and in the live performance of this that I saw at that bar a uh, shout out to Mortimer's in Minneapolis the uh, the uh, performance I saw there um Ayana's voice doubled that melody so nice. you have the low and then the high and really really something to be in the space and hear music like that you know local music these classic sounds that really speak to our time that is an aesthetic uh, a story that so many of us can connect to imagine the stress of hearing all of those sirens and everything and you can't even escape that in your sleep you have those nightmares you know i i can something that i'll never forget from working uh overnights something I tell Dell all the time, it used to feel like such a treat after I do all of my um, overnight radio stuff, keeping up my um, my consulting work and triloquy and everything, you know, working sometimes 20 hours a day even. When both of my knees are in the mattress, that was like a treat. Like for me to be all the way in the bed, oh. not sitting on the bed, not tying my shoes or whatever, but like in the bed, oh, that just felt like such a freeing thing. But for that to not be freeing, you know, be so stressed and have so much going around you to where that sleep is just an extension of the stress. Goodness gracious, what a what a thing to feel and and what a powerful feeling and experience to put into a piece of music. I had a really visceral visceral reaction just with the tidbits that you played earlier. And then this right here, this is an amazing track. I love his voice in it. It's haunting. It's, uh, I'm not sure. I'll have to listen to the whole thing. I'm not sure yeah. if he is the Sandman's voice here or talking I'll about. Say, you want to get deep. You know, okay. Well, that's what, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. what it's making me think about. Yeah. So shout out to the Muadas. I mean, and, and look, they have, and uh, that, that's I'll just us. right here. That's they they have twelve views on on this YouTube link. So they're they're so again. 
There's so much music out here, so much stuff that we aren't appreciating, so much stuff that isn't always at the center. You know, uh, during the during their set, what one of the things they kept saying was, "Oh, we're not doing all, any of this to be famous or to you know be musicians. We both have jobs, but we both have you know experiences that we're really good at sharing musically. So you know, on top of just their everyday lives, they excuse me, they uh, have the ability to create stuff like this. So we we have to rally around as much of this music as we can and and just really get used to foregrounding the idea of supporting and honoring the folks who are here instead of the folks who have been dead for a, a couple hundred years you know despite what we think about genre and all all mm. of that stuff so yeah shout out to the muadas i really wanted to make sure i gave them some space on this opus i'll have a, a link to their website um, for you to check out they have music on Bandcamp. be sure to um, support local artists um, especially those local artists who don't always get the spotlight in our so-called classical spaces all right well as we get into the third movement uh, this week's guest is Sam Hyken so Sam uh, just uh, at on his own is is a really interesting person he uh played with singapore of uh, the singapore symphony for a long time has traveled internationally has done a lot of producing and arranging for some really big names and finds himself now currently is the artistic director and CEO of the New Deco Ensemble. The New Deco Ensemble is based down in Florida, and their mission is to create compelling and transformative genre-bending musical experiences that inspire, enrich, and connect new and diverse audiences and artists. So I sit down and speak with uh, Sam about his journey to this type of work, what they're trying to do with this orchestra, what's that, uh, what that looks like, and uh, and and and. Every everything connected to that. We start our conversation by talking a bit about what got him from being a music student to a trumpet player way over in Singapore. You know, that's something for a young 20 something to do, especially, Absolutely. you know, in, in music. So uh, we start there and and and, and have all sorts of uh, really great conversations. To get us there into that conversation, I wanted to share um, a recording by the new Deco Ensemble back uh, in February, February of 2021. They released a performance that featured the Outcast Suite. Mm -hmm. You know, in the way we have all of these musical suites and classical music, mm -hmm. they have the Outcast Suite. I can't wait till we have the Beyonce Suite. That's going to be something, or or any of them. The we talked about the, the Beyonce the, Symphony, the, the Whitney Houston Suite, or mm. whoever our favorite mm. artists are. So anyway, they they play a bit of the. Uh, outcast suite here we're going to hear a bit of the orchestral setting of hey ya the composition hey ya to get us in the, into the third movement and my conversation with sam hyken Verbier Festival um, during the summer times, and 
I was put into a section that had, uh, I was the only American in my section, it was all European colleagues, and okay. just really found that I got on with them super well. And and I think two of the four of them had studied at the Royal Academy of Music in London. So I ended up, after Juilliard, going to, to RAM for a one-year postgraduate diploma. And while I was there, uh, the Singapore Symphony was doing uh, international audition tour for associate principal trumpet. So they came to London and kind of on a whim, I decided to take the audition, you know, knowing that if I, uh, if I got a trial, I'd get a free week over in Singapore. Yeah. And, um, so I ended up getting a trial and on that week, uh, in Singapore, it was Yo-Yo Ma was a uh, soloist. So it was like a really special week. It was all Chinese music. Like I never really had played any of that kind of music before. And Giacomo was on trial at the same time. So we both met on our audition week and I was there for two years and, uh, I was the youngest member of the orchestra uh, and had a really just amazing experience while I was there. Yeah, you you talked about playing music you hadn't before. How did playing with the Singapore Symphony impact your perspective on orchestral programming and, and repertoire? Was was there a lot of music that you were learning for the first time over there? I mean, I think, you know, some of the Chinese repertoire, like Bright Chang and um, mm. some names are escaping. You know, I really, really loved playing that music. And I remember we did a... a a work of his just that, that was on my trial week and it was like one of the hardest pieces I ever played, but I really liked the language. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, I mean, in terms of that programming, you know, th- that's probably the only time in my life I've ever played that repertoire. So it, you know, it was really interesting, like thinking in terms of Western audiences versus Eastern audiences. I don't think it necessarily influenced my own kind of definition of programming in terms of new deco or my own career, but, um, you know, it definitely, while while we were over there, sparked a lot of conversations about the future of, of orchestral music and where it was all going. And really, is and those conversations is really what kind of led to everything that's going on these days. Yeah, yeah. And you you left Singapore to go back into, you know, what, what a lot of people describe as a pre-professional uh, sort of thing. I mean, what, what I, I hate to describe it as a step back, maybe a, a lateral step, but, but why did you do that? Why did you leave Singapore? It, it's funny. I went from having a job in Singapore to a fellowship in New World to going to getting a master's. So I, I kept kind of reversing. <laughs> um, but, you know, for me, the reason that I ended up wanting to go to New World, well, I'd always wanted to be in New World ever since I was in college. But um, while I was doing the Verbier Festival, uh, Michael Tilson Thomas came to conduct and me and him just really hit it off. I was doing uh, the trumpet solo from American in Paris and just was working with him on phrasing. And it just I, I never found myself getting out of my own kind of body in terms of uh, music making before where I wasn't thinking about the actual technique of playing the trumpet that mm-hmm. I was just so focused on the phrasing and I was like I have to go work with him and and you know Singapore while the orchestra is really really um fantastic and and even getting better like than it was when I was there it's like in terms of um you know rating within the world um I found that a it was just it's so far away that you just kind of lose um sight of everything a little bit and sure. and I and and you know it's very, it's a little bit of isolated situation. So you're not really getting orchestras coming in or, or you're being around other colleagues. And I just found that I had a hunger to be around people that were hungry and like really in it and taking auditions. And, you know, for my own level, I, I wanted to just be growing. And, you know, my, my goal when I came down to New World Symphony was to be like the next principal trumpet of the San Francisco Symphony sure. or New York Philharmonic. But, but that really all just evolved when, when I got down there. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting how how stuff sort of changes. So, and 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 speaking of changes, trumpet, it doesn't look like uh, is what you focused on for the next part of your career. I mean, where did the composition and the uh, arranging work come from? 
you know, it was always something that I, you know, when I was a kid, and I always talk about this, which is, you know, when you're when you're like a student in junior high school or high school, like the instrumental performance, especially like in classical, is like the easiest way to measure progress. Mm-hmm. So like that's what I was like pushed on, like lessons and that. But I always was really interested in like keyboards. And my grandma always bought me like a new like Casio keyboard for my my birthdays. And I was always like, you know, making beats on there and just kind of dabbling. And for my my uh my bar mitzvah, I actually like, you know, they do this candle lighting where you invite your family and they all make speeches and, and usually like the band will play them up. But I like, I did a song for like, okay. for every, everybody <laughs> that came up, but it was not something that I ever pursued seriously. And when I was at Juilliard, you know, I would go to the computer lab and dabble a bit. And then when I was at new world, I started making arrangements. Um, they have what's called the friends of the new world symphony, which is, you know, the young, the young patrons group. And they would have these after hours events and, you know, they'd always like, you know, have, musicians doing different things either playing with dj or um playing covers and i started making arrangements for those events and found that i was really into it and really loved doing it mm-hmm. and you know as i was in new world i started doing more and more arranging more like dabbling on civilians a garage band logic just kind of just creating all the time and um really by the end of my time there i just found that you know there was a lot more music not just in terms of uh, the medium which I was expressing music in, but also genres that I wanted to explore. Mm-hmm. And um, so I kind of took a plunge. I I, I met with, um, I actually was just really looking for arranging lessons in Miami. And I ended up finding out a program called Media Writing and Production at the University of Miami and ended up meeting with their program director there just to, you know, show them what I had done and just what I was interested in and see if, you know, they, that would be appropriate for me to join their master's program. And um, I ended up getting into it based off the, like the little portfolio I did from, um, from my time at new world. And really like, I just dived in as soon as I started school there. Cause it was like the kind of program where you just learn to do everything, big band arranging, film scoring, just straight up music, producing, mixing, just like audio classes. And I just was this, I just wanted to, to, to learn. And yeah. really very quickly um, from then I started getting my music played by different orchestras around the country. I became composer in residence with Miami symphony. I started either doing like strings for different, um, producers or pop artists, or even like, you know, as I was building my career, like putting orchestras in back of different artists, I would come down to Miami. It just started progressing kind of very quickly, which really like all of those skill sets ended up manifesting itself in New Deco. Yeah. Yeah. You have a lot of artists and a lot of orchestras uh, credited, you know, with having uh, performed your work. Our commissions back post COVID or, you know, in this leg of COVID, I I wonder, you know, from the composer's perspective, what does the commissioning landscape look right now as a lot of the orchestras are trying to, you know, come back? You know, um, I, you know, I had a probably one of my largest commissions that had to be uh, delayed. Like that was right at the onset of COVID. I was actually commissioned by um, Miami city ballet to work with um, uh, Jamal Roberts from Alvin Ailey to create a new work mm. uh, for Miami city ballet. And, and that ended up getting um, postponed probably indefinitely through COVID. And really like, I would say that I'm, um, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to still have new deco and really be just writing a lot for, uh, for our stream season, uh, and really put my attention during that uh, pretty much 100% during COVID, which is like, it's pretty much 95% anyways. Mm -hmm. Um, but I am starting to get, you know, that arranging work. I would say like original work right now from other workshops, but, but, but now like I am doing some arranging for the Boston Pops now, um, for the band train and, um, other kinds of projects are now like that side, the rentals, 
the arranging work, that's all starting to come back now for sure. Yeah, that's great. And I'm sure all of these things just uh, come together and uh, manifest when we're talking specifically about uh, New Deco and the, and the really cool and interesting work that y'all are doing there. When I, when I think about New Deco, uh, I can't uh, divorce New Deco from its geographic location. I, I wonder, you know, when we talk about Florida as such a politically charged state, a state that is having uh, uh, very unique COVID challenges, what's yeah. the role of an ensemble like New Deco in the midst of, of all of that? So I ultimately look our role in, you know, our, you know, we are very about our Miami community. You know, we are of Miami for Miami. I think even the name New Deco inherently, you know, Deco architecture and, mm -hmm. and like, it's kind of a play on words where Deco means taking an older style and putting it into a new context. And, and you as well, traditionally, when you put it from a name of music, new soul, new metal, it always means taking that legacy style and putting it into a new context. So it's kind of a play on, it's like new Deco. So it's, okay. it's a play on that. Now, in terms of, you know, our role, I always look at, you know, the orchestra and how we define it as an ultimate place for connection. Um, you know, we've, our audiences, the music we play, the makeup of our ensemble is very diverse. Um, the repertory play is, you know, over 50% of it is um, of artists of color or women. And I just look at it as a place for ultimate connection. So in, you know, the middle of these, you know, charged times and everything going on within our state that we, you know, we are a place where um, different audiences, um, different repertoire that we value music, all music equally. So we 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 look at our role as like this place of, of healing and connection. And, you know, we've seen some pretty amazing um, moments of that in our audience. And also, um, you know, the artists we bring in, many of the artists that come down have never played with an orchestra hmm. before and or like even um, commissions that we do, like we've commissioned um, artists like Robert Glasper and uh, Corey Henry and Maggie Yaniku and Kishibashi for their first orchestral works. Um, and so we just look at this place that we can elevate all music and be real a place for connection for, for all of our audiences, and the students we serve. And um, even our youth orchestra just really looks like Miami. So, mm -hmm. you know, we take that role very seriously of this place of connection in the midst of like all the craziness that is going on. Yeah. And as you describe uh, the context of that phrase, new deco and and mesh that with orchestral performance. I, I don't know. I like the idea of pink neon lights in the hall and yes. you know maybe even wicker furniture, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I love it. A, a part of the uh, mission uh you use the phrase genre bending. I mean, I, I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that because so many of us are talking about a more expansive definition, a more expansive view of the phrase classical music. Um, but genre bending, you know, must be a way of acknowledging that, yes, these are different traditions that are coming together. So I, I personally, when talking about New Deco, like, it, like to shy away from the word classical just because it, it's definitely inherently a part of what we do. And, mm -hmm. you know, the makeup of our ensemble is a hybrid ensemble. Now it's like, if it's, it's partly top trained conservatory players, we've gone to Juilliard and Curtis and Eastman, places like that, with a rhythm section that is, you know, of that equal ilk, but just more on the touring session side, you know, really mm -hmm. like real session players that can really groove, but also can read music. So we're... Um, you know, really, really flexible. Um, but, you know, in terms of genre bending, I really look at us as, as opposed to expanding classical music, like redefining what the orchestra is um, and the orchestra's role, um, not just, you know, 
in terms of society in general, but to to its community and how you know how an orchestra can can serve within its community. And so, you know, like as I mentioned before, you know, we 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 value. It's always our goal is to elevate any of the music or artists that we work with. So so for us, it's it's like when we say genre bending, it's just that it's you could also say genre blending or no genre. That is mm. just that that we're just flexible in each. Where some days that you know you could see New Deco performing Petrushka, or you can see us doing music of Aretha Franklin, and or a show with Wyclef Jean, and it, and it's really like you can see any of those things um, as long as they can have you know some sort of connection within the context of the story we're trying to tell within the same con- concert. So that's what we mean by genre bending. So there is some of the Western European orchestral standard repertoire in there as well as the you know more contemporary how, how do you approach uh balancing those two things i mean you know so our repertoire really consists of four main buckets which is you know we do uh we do have a focus on living composers in 20 and 21st century um reimaginations um of both classical music so we reimagine um bach uh, vivaldi hmm. nutcracker um, and then reimaginations of artists like um, Daft Punk and Radiohead and LCD Sound System. Um, and then we do these collaborations, of course, with artists like Wyclef Jean and Jacob Collier and Macy Gray. But then, you know, you will see um, uh, when we're in bigger halls, more of these warhorse pieces like um, Billy the Kid or um, uh, um, Porgy and Bess or... Um, West Side Story, things like that, um, mm-hmm. Petrushka we've done. Um, it really depends on the hall. Um, I wouldn't say it w- it's like an equal balance. You know, our formula has generally historically been, you know, our first half is where we're focused more on our living composers or these kinds of pieces. Um, and then our second halves are more of our collaborations and these suites, what we call them. So that's, you know, kind of how we've generally um, kept to the formula, but uh, it changes slightly from venue to venue and it's it's evolving over time. Yeah, and I know I'm sure there's a, a whole team that, you know, works on developing the ideas for these concerts and that sort of thing. But I wonder if you could uh, speak a little bit to the process. Let's say on the first half of a concert, you want something, you know, by uh, I'm trying to think of a living composer. Let's just say Michael Torkey. OK, so mm-hmm. he's from uh, Wisconsin for a second half. Are you looking for a pop star that can speak to the sort of audience that Michael Torkey might pull? Or, or or what goes into just forming uh, the the concerts? You know, it it's it's like generally, you know, if we have a bucket of of you know, if you look on our kind of concert programming doc, we have all these different buckets we pull from, and we do try and find a connection between the pieces. And and I would say generally, a lot of times uh, our programming is more if we take our guests and then in our suite and then kind of build back from that. Uh, generally okay. speaking. So, for instance, we have this artist that's coming out. We haven't announced it yet, but it's okay. Um, this artist coming in uh, January named J.P. Sachs, who had uh, the song of the year, one of the songs of the year with Julia Michaels called If the World Was Ending. He was nominated for Song of the Year for Grammys. He happens to be the grandson of Janos Starker, um, okay. funny enough. So, so you know, we started looking at um, Janos Starker and his contemporaries, which include Bartok mm-hmm. and, and people like that. So we're programming Bartok within the context of that concert, kind of um, as uh, as the tribute to him, to J.P. Sachs and his life. So, so there's these kinds of um, thoughts and considerations that, that do come up within that. I wouldn't okay. say like, we're like Michael Torkey, like, you know, Wisconsin and and, and then get that micro about right. it. Um, you know, for us, you know, sometimes 
you know, the story, it's not as like, narratively smooth, but more sonically, it just makes sense. It just feels right. It's like, a, like sonically, it feels like, you know, one to the next to the next. It's like, and you feel, you leave our concerts with that, that, that sonic journey, which just feels like it makes sense. So it's both of that. It's not really a, a specifically like 100% set in one or the other. Yeah. Have you found that uh, the artists that you collaborate with, uh, with New Deco specifically, that 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 they're um, excited about an orchestral performance? Do they see it sort of novel? Maybe there's some artists who are like, oh, yeah, been there, done that second oboes, da, 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 you know, <laughs> well, well, what does that look like? You know, I would say the majority of the artists that we have down have never played with an orchestra before. Okay. And it's a really one, it's like a really new, um, amazing experience playing with all that sound. I mean, my approach to arranging with these artists is for them to come down and feel like they're playing their set, but it's just a very elevated, enhanced version. So like I mm -hmm. do a lot of research on the live versions and make sure the song form is exactly how they like it. You know, we can always make adjustments as we go, but, but like, that's like, that's the general approach, but we have had artists like Ben Folds, who's, you know, definitely oh, yeah. done orchestras before yeah. and, and knows it. And then, um, you know, some artists said it's like, you know, it's their bucket list uh, to, to have done it. And, or like her, have done it once and not had a good experience. Like, um, you know, someone like Wyclef had, had kind of tried that avenue and it just, for whatever reason, it wasn't like, it, it wasn't what he thought it was, but then he came to us and we and took a completely different approach. And, and now, you know, we're wonderful colleagues. So it's like, it, it kind of varies. You must see New Deco as, as serving a, a vital part of the ecosystem if so many of these big artists had have never performed with orchestras. It seems like someone like, you know, Wyclef would have done that hundreds of times, you know, or or, or many of the folks you, uh, you, you've worked with. I, I guess there's a sense of responsibility there that you must feel. I do. And, you know, I, it's always like a dream of ours that New Deco becomes, you know, a check the box kind of place that it's like part of the circuit. Like, you know, an artist will do Saturday Night Live, Tiny Desk, and like mm -hmm. they want to come do New Deco. And, um, and so that's definitely, you know, always a dream. And I do, I, we do take it, it you know, we, we never, it's, the there's two aspects of you know our work with these guest artists is one which is like we never want to be a backup orchestra we never want to just be playing whole notes for them we always want it to be like it's an equal voice within the collab it's a collaboration it's mm -hmm. not just accompaniment and while it can you know it, we are serving their music it's it's still there you know we're, we're a strong voice within the collaboration and then the flip side of it is you know with these commissions you know i think i, I really look I really take our role seriously as expanding the canon and, you know, giving the opportunity to some of these multi-genre artists like a Glasper who has so much to say and whose music can like really translate to orchestral instrument. It just kind of needs that, that bridge or, or that, you know, little, um, um, kind of help with the orchestration, but like, it's just, you know, knows what knows what he wants, but it's just needs that extra kind of voice. And I, I love having that role of being able to, you know, help an artist um, like him or Corey Henry and like make their dreams come true. And yeah. like, you know, have this whole another palette of expression. Are you ever, you, you mentioned, you know, not just writing whole notes for the orchestra. Are you, are you ever challenged on the front of doing too much or, or adding too much decoration to a song that may, that the artist may want to be very uh, transparent or, or thin or whatever word we want to use? I'm, I'm definitely a classic over orchestrator. I think I've gotten, <laughs> I think I've gotten better over the years for sure. And like, you know, I think it's like definitely like an illness among arrangers and orchestrators. Like you want to hear your voice, you know, you're, yeah. you're doing the, but, but off a lot of time, the music just doesn't call for it. And like, we just released an album today um, with Larkin Poe, who's a roots rock sister duo. And I would say out of like a lot, um, 
of all the arranging projects I've done, even though there are a lot of lines in there, I definitely let the music breathe more than other projects. And, you know, when we were working with Corey, Hen Corey Wong, um, a virtuosic guitarist right after that, who like watched the live stream and said, hey, you know, I want more than just, you know, outlining the, you know, I feel like this was a lot of chord outlining and, and, and I want like, this is how I see it. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I wouldn't say it was defensive, but I told him like, hey, this was actually intentional. And, but it made me really think about like the actual, I appreciated him saying that and what he actually wanted within the arrangements. And, you know, he was really specific about what he saw the orchestra's role within the context of that collaboration. So like that, like I, like my ego isn't that big where I like really love that guidance to mm -hmm. like really, it's like my goal to like make their vision, like accentuate their vision and leave them feeling extraordinarily satisfied. Cause that's the stuff that I personally find like really like as an artist like stays with me more than anything is like giving other people like their moment like the moments that you know if someone says oh that's a great suite or a great piece like it's like okay what's next like, yeah. it never doesn't last but like when someone feels like you've done something for them that's like that's what i live for yeah and and i'm sure the the musicians uh appreciate it uh and i, I wanted to actually sort of zone in on the musicians you know earlier you talked about finding uh you know more session style rhythm sections that can really groove but they can also uh read music on the on the uh you know on the orchestral side on on that side are uh, what what is the conversation um surrounding you know yes they, they can read the music they're well trained but can they groove i mean is yes. that a, is the, is that a part of it definitely definitely and it's and it's you know i mean it's uh, the core of our group is from miami so it's inherently in there for sure okay and, and uh, <laughs> but but we do search for players that really can live in those both worlds. So like um, we had um, last year season, um, the last two shows we had Mark Dover um, come and play with us. And Mark Dover is in Imani wins. And um, that guy's like the Michael Jordan of clarinet, like clarinet, but he also, you'll see him like soloing in Madison Square Garden with Van mm -hmm. Holpeck and like the guy like can play anything. And it's like, okay, if I could like, create the like new edition like if i could like you know type in a computer and like the new deco ultimate musician like popped out right. or someone like that or like we have a trumpet player um who i went to juilliard with omar butler uh who also just lives in you know, he, he you know he can play the orchestral rep the solo rep and then also he can play lead trumpet and improvise as well so it's like you know those kinds of flexible players are like the you know you know we're, we're always uh, on the on the hunt you know for yeah and, that's like, you know, the ideal kind of player that could just be turned on a dime and it's, it's, it's super flexible, but, you know, I think inherently all of our musicians really, you know, having played all this rep are just, you know, amazing at it and, and can really groove. And that's like the comment we get from all of our guests. It's like, wow, you guys really groove. And even the classical players. Yeah. So you, know? you, you, you have your ultimate new deco musician in mind that, you know, that prototype, what about the audience member? What, what sort of audience do you do hope to uh, pull in with, with this really unique style of uh, so, orchestral performance? And Gary, it's really interesting because when we started and, 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 to you know, to speak to the other point, like when we started, New Deco was really more of a class group, a classical group that played different kinds of repertoire, and that was like really the and, and like we didn't really have a rhythm section when we started. It was like our our classical players play drums and they could play really well and play bass and whatnot, but it it, it just it just wasn't the same. Um, and um, you know, for in terms of audience, when we started you know, the idea was, okay, we're going to play Daft Punk and that's going to bring in young people. And it did. And that was the idea. But what we started seeing happening was that all of a sudden, like our, the older audience that came were like, wow, 
I really like Outkast. Wow, I like Daft Punk. And we were actually serving as that gateway to more popular styles of music for older audiences that really didn't have that entry point. And like actually introducing, like, like having the responsibility to be like, okay, this is who David Bowie is. This is who Daft Punk is. This is who Radiohead is. And like, while it's like the young people came for that, it's like, we're like actually introducing and like, and like honoring that music to older audiences. So we pull in like a very, very diverse audience in Miami and, 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 and from hall to hall, from venue to venue, just in, in general. Um, you know, I, I, I think at our first season, like our average age was under the age of 40 and it's definitely gotten older as the years have gone on. Or I would say like our, our sweet spot of audience is like the 40 to 60 range probably. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I almost want to challenge the idea of, you know, systems change not really happening. I mean, if the if the audience looks the same, despite the music looking different, I mean, what what, what do you think we have to do to actually, you know, get the average age to 25 or, or 30? You know, I don't you know, I don't know in terms of average age, like I, you know, like, cause, cause like our approach is really, it's, it's been really for a more a universal approach as we've gone on. Um, and like, that's kind of become the idea, you know, in terms of selling those kinds of experience, it's just the, the world is constantly evolving and just like the medium of entertainment is when you see that, like now TikTok has overturned, overrun YouTube in terms of yeah. how we even see video content. I don't, I don't know if, if, um, you know, in terms of that being the core, the core audience, unless you're really doing things in like really unusual spaces, even like, like the repertoire, I, I, I just, you know, if, if that's like who you're only seeing, I don't, I don't know. I, I haven't seen that. I mean, yeah. I really love the makeup of our audience. And I think that, you know, we do have that, that demographic that is attractive to sponsor, you know, that 18 to 49 demographic, you know, we do, we do get, you know, that more than any other really institution within Miami. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of like, like only that, I don't, pro I wouldn't <laughs> say I had that answer because I haven't seen it. Sure. Sure. Well, beyond revolutionizing what a concert experience sounds like or, or feels like, I wonder if you've seen reverberations outside of the concert hall, what sort of education work does a uh, new, new, get uh, new deco do? So it's really been important to us to have an education outreach component, you know, even in our infancy. Um, and so we're at a place with our concerts where every time we do a show, the day before we're doing an education concert, we're busing in kids. Um, last year we live streamed directly into the schools and that's really kind of our inspirational, um, indirect educational programming. Um, you know, we, we hit just through that alone last year, over 35,000 kids, um, through, through online streaming. Uh, and then now we can welcome them back this year in a, in a, in a safe manner, um, I would say um, also, in addition to that, like we have the next level, which is, um, you know, we do go take smaller groups into schools itself to have that slightly more direct, you know, uh, help, you know, different music departments with, you know, both working on our repertoire, but also, you know, helping them for what they need. But then we also, and this is a recent program in the last two years, um, we created our own youth ensemble in Miami called New Deco NXT, New Deco Next. And um, it's focused on four main pillars, which is, um, you know, flexible performance, uh, music creation, wellness, and leadership. And so um, it's like, it kind of stems, it's a, a kid, it's a junior version of the makeup of our ensemble, but it really stems from the idea that, you know, when, when I was in school, at least, you know, the, you have the classical kids and then you have the jazz kids and the rock kids and never the two shall meet. And it's like, 
all these kids never get to work together. And like the idea of music creation um, and certainly wellness um, is, has never really been like a major part of the curriculum, at least on like that classical performance side, right, at least when right. I was growing up. So like those four pillars were, were really important, you know, to, you know, what, what is a resilient 21st century musician look like? And so we started the youth orchestra last year, uh, got shut down in the middle of COVID. We're able to continue online with different, um, um, workshops. I taught like a pop music composition to the kids that were interested. Giacomo did meditation, et cetera, like during the COVID times and some masterclasses with our students. But then we were able to get it running this year. And for over spring break, um, we had a full on 35 piece youth orchestra doing new deco repertoire. Um, they wrote their own piece. They, they were doing meditation um, and yoga and also um, different leadership kind of classes. And um, it's really the makeup of what we consider like the, the tools needed, not just for a musician in the 21st century, but just like a flexible human being yeah. as well. So, so it's all very important. And, and then in addition to that, 20% of all, all of our concert tickets we give to community organizations and um different not-for-profits we partner and it's a real give back so you know we have ultimate access to our concerts from the people who can't afford to come well yeah it sounds like some really great work going on down there i i, I won't lie i'm i'm a little hesitant about trips to florida but, <laughs> <laughs> I, but I understand but I understand. But, but but for the folks who are there you know it, it sounds like there's some incredible work going on you mentioned a collaboration with uh larkin poe one one of your uh latest uh projects how about you uh talk a little bit about how that came to be and how folks can check it out so Larkin Poe was introduced to us um, there. You know, we're part of a management firm called Red Light Management, which um, was founded by uh, Corin Capshaw, who's Dave Matthews' manager. So people, there, it's it's really about like artists with sustainable careers, like Dave Matthews, Angelique Kidjo, um, Herbie Hancock, and so we've been a part of that firm. And so we tend to you know have good relationships with different managers there. And Larkin Poe was part of that firm, and and our manager uh, brought us their music, and we never done a collaboration with a. Um, uh, roots rock duo before but we're just really struck with their just high level high level of artistry and <coughs> excuse me the collaboration when they came down or even from our very first phone call was just it, it just was so organic and uh it, it felt so easy and when they came down just such high like they hit it out of the park every time we knew we had something special um and then it's and the concert was really well received by their fans the next thing you knew, they asked us if we would send them the stems from the show for them to check out. And then like about three weeks later, we got a mix of, of uh, one of the songs like and edited in a mix. And and we're just, we were like, this is fantastic. This sounds amazing. And they they edited and mixed the whole collaboration. Um, we, were, we were super down to release it. Um, we feel it really came out strongly. Uh, their fans were really wanting it. It's their first um, release of this one song of theirs called Mad as a Hatter, which is about, um, Alzheimer's dementia, mental illness, uh, which has been very requested by their fans. They've never had a project to release it on, and this is the first time. So uh, it just came out today on all DSPs, uh, and we're putting all the videos from the performance on YouTube as well, and just really excited about uh, how it came out. It was recorded in COVID, but uh, it, 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 uh, it's a wonderful representation of the kinds of collaborations that we do and the kind of artists that we like to work with. Yeah, yeah, I'll 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 make sure we get some of that tune in the uh, in the outro to our conversation here. But but before I ask you my last question, how can folks learn more about uh, New Deco? Maybe even folks who aren't in uh, in in Florida, learn more about the concerts and everything else that y'all are doing. So um, you can find out about us right on our website, newdeco.org. There's a hyphen there, and new is spelled N-U, so it's new-deco.org. Um, 
We also um, have a very robust YouTube channel with a lot of our collaborations and pieces. Um, you know, we, content is the name of the game for us. So we're always putting out new content um, where we released like the, the album of Lark and Poe. And we have another album coming out a week from today uh, with uh, R&B sensation Luke James, which was oh, a wow. project we did together. Um, we did at the Adrian Arsh Center um, last year. He had done a... Um, a live stream, uh, uh, an album called To Feel Love that was nominated for um, R&B Album of the Year. And, you know, he had done it with, we'd worked together prior to that. And so he really went into creating that album with the intention of eventually doing it with us. And we finally got the chance. We did it um, uh, for, uh, it was on all of BET's. BET was the media partner on it. So it was all on their digital platforms and Patron sponsored it as part of their backing the VAR initiative, which um, provides licenses and support for black businesses, especially affected from the pandemic. So we were able to raise some money there. And now we're finally putting that album as well. So a lot of releases going on on all of the digital platforms, Instagram, everything. So check us out wherever you, wherever you can get content. Yeah, that's awesome. So, you know, 20, 30 years into the future, do you see uh, the the schematic that New Deco is building as the future of alternative orchestral or the future of the Friday, Saturday night at the orchestra, despite, you know, uh, uh, alternative natures or anything? Do you see uh, New Deco as what orchestras need to survive the next the next generation? So I I view it as uh, whatever is appropriate for the city that it's in. I don't think that every city necessarily needs uh, a natural history museum, and I don't. And and this may be controversial, but I don't think that every city it's shown can you know at least at this moment in time has the capacity to support a full symphony orchestra. And I think there are some cities that a, a model like New Deco may be just more uh, appropriate for and may, you know, I don't think it has to replace it. I do think they can live side by side. I do think that the full symphony orchestra, I mean, I, you know, that's what I grew up in. And, and you know, I, I love that the, the direction that the, that generally symphony orchestras are taking more of these days. So it's my hope that, you know, that there are other kinds, other versions of New Deco, but those two models live side by side. I know what time is, time is a thief It'll steal into bed and rob you while you sleep And you'll never feel it It pulls off the covers, rifles through your head And then you wake to find you can't remember what you just said little bit of Larkin Poe with the New Deco Ensemble to, to take us out there. Larkin Poe's collaboration with New Deco is uh, their latest release, I believe. So mm. <clears throat> I'll have uh, a link there for y'all to check that out. Really incredible work by, by this ensemble. I mean, before we started uh, the interview, the, the Hey Ya, the Outcast, mm -hmm. I mean, the most charming piece of music. And we talk about how, you know, orchestras in our, you know, still colonized thinking of what an orchestra is, can play that music kind of square or whatever. But mm -hmm. I think, oh, I, I just can't speak enough how much I really love that performance. And then having a collaboration here with Larkin Poe, they're really, you know, uh, touching so many different communities with different uh, genres. And, and the way they, they transform this is some really just incredible work being done by the new Deco Ensemble. One of, uh, one of the last things that Sam was saying in our conversation was that it may seem controversial, but every city just doesn't need um, X art museum or X whatever, or even 
a, an orchestra, certainly not a classical orchestra. So, you know, something I wanted to throw at you before we got into the uh, fourth movement. Does every city need classical, so-called classical music? Is that something that people will be missing out on the experience of life if their city does not have that, especially considering the issues that we're always trying to break down and, and, and the conversations being had. I like Do, the does, idea, does every community need it? Need is not the word that I would use. I would like for it to be there and available. Sure. Um, because there's some really beautiful elements yeah. about a lot of the music. But um, no, I, I'm not going to come right out and say it's not 100% necessary. I think that it should be there and available. All music styles should be there and available. I think if we had ensembles like New Deco in more places, if, if every city's orchestra was more like that, mm. goodness gracious, the, the whole thing could be so different. You know, again, like what the uh, the Philadelphia Public Orchestra is doing, for, for that just aesthetic, for that relationship, for that kinship, again, back to the George Lewis article, for that kinship to be established there is is transformative, and the New Deco Ensemble is doing it. So congratulations to uh, all of y'all uh, down there, Sam, Giacomo, and everyone on the leadership team. All right, we're getting into the fourth movement, into the triloquy, uh, we started this opus with words from Lizzo. So, you know, I thought that we could get into the fourth movement with a bit of her music because she's really good at trilling on that flute. So here's a bit of her performance from the 2020 Grammys to get us into the fourth movement. I had to, Scott, I had to unfriend somebody on <laughs> on Facebook a couple of years ago because they were trying to throw shade. They, they were like, oh, well, too bad I didn't think of, of just getting my instrument and trilling on stage. Well, Lizzo is doing much more than that, okay? And I think she doesn't, you know, the, the flute and her con the connections that she makes to orchestral music, Western classical music, aren't even necessary. At this point, I see Lizzo as doing a favor to classical music by trying to make those connections and, 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 and draw that kinship. You know, her flute has its own Instagram. Mm -hmm. I'm not, are you yeah. follow you follow you follow Lizzo's flute? I, I, I don't do. follow it, but I know that it exists. <laughs> she's 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 playing some incredible music. Like if you really do a deep dive into Lizzo's flute playing, mm -hmm. that is some pedagogy. I wish there could be a, a method book of the things that she's put on stage to to get all of our flute playing uh, up up to snuff. So shout out to Lizzo, and we are here in the fourth movement, the weekly triloquy. Scott, I came across this article that I wanted to uh, bring into the triloquy this week. Um, this is uh, the I'll, I'll have the link. I don't. It's a it's a long URL, but um, it's a piece by Sammy Sussman. the The title is "Playing a Blackface Video Isn't Fireable. It Shouldn't Be Okay." So, long story short. Sammy tells the story of being a student and they're getting into Verdi and, and the connections to Shakespeare and all that sort of thing. And a video is shown for a, a video from 1965, put on a, a performance put on by the National Theater where 
the main character, Othello, is proudly just and straight up black and, and not the sort of black face that they can argue. Oh, no, I was just trying to just black face for real. Mm -hmm. OK, it was shown in the classroom and the school administration, after a, a few students complained, didn't think it was that big of a deal, went on to, well, this uh, this prestigious professor had some reason. Maybe you should talk to him X, Y and Z and enough uh, energy was drummed up to where it was actually dealt with and and they you know got that out of the curriculum and and all that sort of thing I'll y'all y'all can read all of the uh, the details in the article that I'll put uh, in uh, in the description but it should also be pointed out that this was shown without any sort of it was just put on cold. Right. There was no As prep. if it's normal. As if this is just a, a part of, of what we do. I just, no, and is I, it not? You know, is it because, well, well, let me, let me not get ahead of myself. The first thing I wanted to ask you and talk about, Scott, again, the title, playing a blackface video isn't fireable. It shouldn't be okay. Do you think that a, a professor is showing again, you know, here in the 21st century where we all know there's no excuse for, for, for that sort of thing. Do you think it should be or should not be fireable if someone, you know, shows students or is in some uh, classical institution at a, a staff meeting or something and there's a reason to show a video and a blackface video is just put on? Do you think that person should be fired or, or punished? Well, what, what do you think should be the recourse there? There should be some sort of... Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of... The, not a sentence. There should be a repercussion. <laughs> a se I there, sentence there, you. No, there should be a I repercussion. I sentence you to unemployment. <laughs> <laughs> there should be a repercussion. Um, but see, the thing is, is that I'm stuck on the idea that if it was a clip... 15, 20 seconds, and he said, this is what blackface is, and this is inappropriate, and he goes into why, and he shows it there. I get it. I don't understand how any professor could think that this was okay. I, I don't, I just don't. Even the, the situation you brought up, presenting an example of blackface, and this isn't okay, do we even have to do that is that a conversation I think we some need to people, have yeah i think because, some people need to have well, it. I, I guess apparently so but the and it might even be generational because what sammy is writing here in the piece is that the students were shocked he talks about let me let me see if i can uh find the the part of it um yeah uh i'm reading here it says i wonder if the chair understood so he's talking about uh sammy's talking about going to the uh, administration and and they're pushing back and saying oh i'm sure he had some reason it says i wonder if the chair understood the deafening silence that permeated the classroom for the 90 minutes Too long. that we were subjected to this video so the students were in shock so it's not like a few of the students had a problem and they needed to have a conversation I'd have walked the, the, out. The, the class was shocked and it, it just went on as it was you said you said you would have walked out <laughs> you said you would you said you would have grabbed your pocketbook and left <laughs> no. me too well no i couldn't have just left i would have stood up and made a i, I would have it would have been loud it would have gotten loud but i understand the shock you know the silence that these these uh these students were feeling because they just couldn't believe it anyway um, what, one of the things that I just couldn't help but to think about, we, we have the professor to talk about, the professor that needs to be dealt with showing blackface video in the classroom. But we, what we also have to really consider, what we were kind of touching on earlier, 
this wasn't just some isolated thing or some black box theater where some weirdo actor decided to go in blackface. This was the National Theater, which means there were makeup artists doing painting that. this man's face black mm -hmm. and doing all of that. This this content is the culmination of many people and not just one one person and we we have to we have to remember that we we have to really consider how this is structural to the arts to the american arts to the you know western european rooted arts to just not really think much about this racism and it's not a big deal you know sort of the bigger point of this article is that classical institutions arts institutions tend to operate on their own set of rules so of uh, the, the idea of, oh, well, this was the time, or you have to understand that this composer or this artist or this librettist was living in such and such, and but we make all sorts of excuses mm -hmm. for, for the issue when in any other context, this sort of media would never ever be appropriate even in the article that i'm gonna post the the blackface is is blurred out i remember years ago at the gym this was probably 2011 2012 back when i was going to the gym um they had looney tunes on uh, that morning for some reason and there was a scene in a bugs bunny cartoon that ended with some blackface stuff and they blurred it out so for a long time now it's been common knowledge that, there... th th that this is a problem and and yet we have to acknowledge all also, that it's a part of that structural history and we can't separate the fact that these classical arts that we worship and spend so much time with, mm -hmm. you know, teaching the youth and trying to replicate and all that stuff is rooted in so many problems in, you know, in ways that we can really dig apart in when we talk about decolonization music and what we center all the way to straight up blackface on the stage as late as 1965 and and beyond that you know even today there have been folks who have been uh, called out I won't call out any names but even a month ago there was a woman in opera who didn't learn her lesson about blackface the first time and got on a CD cover mm -hmm. and painted her face black you know it's it's something that's still going on and it it forces me to just dig deeper dig my heels deeper into the issue that all of this stuff has to go away we we have to stop centering this art form and all of the things that surround it in the way we have because it is intrinsically rooted in racism and problematic media like a national theater the national theater putting blackface on the stage up until i was probably 12 years old um, on after school cartoons, Saturday morning cartoons. It didn't matter if it was Warner Brothers or Tex Avery. You know, Tom and Jerry had loads of of uh, antebellum oriented jokes. Mm -hmm. You know, that must have been the only thing I can think of is they must have been there for uh, the adults. Mm -hmm. But it's there, and uh, you know, being shown as a as we're children, right? Watching this, right, right. Um, go go look up. Uh, the kids' book, Uncle Remus. Oh, I don't even want to know. <laughs> and people are going to be Googling it now. Okay, well, I'm, oh, goodness gracious. So, <sighs> I, I just don't understand how 90 minutes would, would be at all okay. I don't. And how, again, institutions will shield these so-called prestigious individuals. I'm not, I'm not going to put them on blast because at this point it's unnecessary and y'all will see it in the article but you know we, we build these walls around these people doing these things and not even thinking anything of it let i mean let, let's say culturally this professor had no idea 
why are you in front of a classroom, especially at a conservatory, an institution of higher learning, if this is something that you have never engaged or, or taken part in, you, your education is not complete. Mm-hmm. I can't believe, y'all, y'all know how I feel about this. I think, you know, again, the bigger point that I wanted to highlight is that in these classical spaces, it is so easy to just dismiss things or, or shift things in a different way for the sake of the art. When the art itself is so problematic, we have to shift the needle and do what we have to do to not center this. I think about the fact that, well, well but, but, before I, but before I go into that, I just wanted to read this uh, last paragraph. Um, Sammy writes, the next time something like this happens, I hope it doesn't take the continued activism of a student body and the brave advocacy of a few of our department's tenured faculty to force the university to address the obvious moral failing of one distinguished faculty member. The fact that you have to be brave in an institution of higher learning and academia to call something like this out and support students, a body of students who are saying this needs to be dealt with. Y'all need to address this. The, 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 the structure, the, the infrastructures that we work within and work around have to change all the way. Mm. We, we have to, I, I know we, you know, return to the conversation a lot about burning the whole thing down or fixing it. But as we can see here, this is just yet one more example of how the infrastructure itself is not built to support us. We're, you know, we're, we're making excuses for the nonsense. We're making excuses for the blatant racism instead of tearing it down and doing something else. We have a long way to go, but I think we can get there. I, I think this is yet another example of the people having power, students having power, the masses, audiences. These people have the power. So that's what I want to leave you with this week. We have the power. Don't think that you are voiceless. If enough of us stand up and work on decolonizing these classical spaces, decentering the dead European music and having more experiences like we've heard today, the the, um, the history of hip hop symphony, the stuff that New Deco does. Does even getting all the way into um, uh, uh, t- uh, what's Tiempo it? Libre? T- I almost said something else. Uh, Tiempo Libre. Uh, it's 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 there. The content is there. What we need to do to fill the space that we're taking away. All, all of that stuff is there. We just have to have the the courage to do it. But we have the power. You have the power as an individual. We all have the power and the ability to do this. So move forward, understanding that power so that we can get this stuff changed sooner than later. Love y'all. See you next week. (laughs) 